0: you think, who are the healthiest people I know, almost certainly they have some sort of philosophy around their health and fitness that's internally consistent, that, that speaks to their values that they really believe in, right? Like maybe they're vegan or they're paleo. There's something that is bigger than just assorted tips and tricks. And so I think that's a really good analogy because that's what, that's what motivated me to think, well, what was the veganism or paleo of the digital
1: world? Hi, my name is Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, medical doctor, author of The Four Pillar Plan and television presenter. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people, both within as well as outside the health space, to hopefully inspire you As well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier, because when we feel better, we live more. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of my Feel Better, Live More podcast. My name is Rongan Chasji and I'm your host. I can't believe that we're up to episode 50 already. It just feels like yesterday that I started the podcast, even though it's actually now been a full 12 months. In this time, the podcast has become one of the most listened to held podcasts in the UK. It's had over 3 million downloads, and Apple has announced it as one of the most downloaded new podcasts of 2018, which is simply incredible. I had the great pleasure of meeting many of you on my recent UK book tour for The Stress Solution, and I've been really touched to find out how many of you are using this as a weekly dose of inspiration to make positive changes in your life. I really appreciate you all listening each week. I have to say, I'm really sorry that I missed this week's Wednesday release date, but I was actually following my own advice. I have been incredibly busy over the last few weeks and done over 15 live dates all around the UK as well as in Sweden. And all that travel and work has really caught up with me. For those of you who do have my new book, The Stress Solution, you will know about the concept that I outline of micro stress doses. I have had a lot of micro stress doses in my life over the past six weeks or so. And I decided that trying to push myself to get this podcast out at the regular time would literally be too much and push me past my own personal stress threshold. I decided to prioritize my own health instead which is why this episode has been put out 48 hours late. I've also decided that after this episode, I'm going to take a short two-week break from releasing podcasts so that I can rest a little and reset. Many of you have said that you actually want to catch up with previous episodes, so perhaps you may get the chance to over the next two weeks. Just make sure that you have pressed subscribe so that you are notified when the next episode comes out, which will be in just over two weeks. So today's guest... On the podcast is Cal Newport, professor of computer science and author of a brand new book, Digital Minimalism. This episode is a great reminder of how much social media has taken over our daily lives. Humans are social animals, and we've evolved to be part of a mutually supportive human tribe where being isolated meant danger. As far as our brains are concerned, digital interactions do not play the same role as real conversations. Instead, they pull our time and attention away from real-world interactions and our brains react as if something is wrong. In addition, constant connection means that downtime has being eroded from our lives and we are losing the ability to just be. We discussed the concepts of digital minimalism and how we all need to spend time doing what Cal calls high-quality leisure activities. This is a thought-provoking conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Now, before we get started, I do need to give a very quick shout out to our sponsors who are essential in order for me to be able to put out weekly podcast episodes like this one. Athletic Greens continue their support of my podcast. Now, I prefer that people get all of their nutrition from foods, but for some of us, this is not always possible. Athletic Greens is one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I've come across and contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. If you're looking to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of this podcast, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Now, on to today's conversation. So, Cal, welcome to the Feel Better Live More podcast. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, obviously, Cal, we're doing this... Um, this, recording this conversation using modern technology. And I think that's going to be very relevant uh, in the course of our conversation because you wrote a book called Deep Work, um, I think a few years back, which really sparked a movement and an idea that unbroken concentration has far more value than electronic busyness, which something, something in that deeply resonates with me. Um, but you've now written a new book called Digital Minimalism: Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. So, I'm just wondering if you could maybe give us a bit of background as to, you know, what Deep Work was about and how this is a follow up from that.
0: So, I wrote Deep Work. It came out in about 2016, and as you mentioned, the central premise of that book is that in knowledge work. The ability to focus without distraction was actually becoming more valuable uh, at the same time that, due to technology in particular, we were becoming worse at it. And so, this was a classic supply and demand mismatch where, if you are one of the few individuals or organizations to systematically cultivate the ability to focus, you are going to have a sort of disproportionately large competitive advantage. So, uh, you know, I'm a computer scientist, I also write books about the impact of technology on culture, and so this was in some sense a book about, you know, unintended consequences of technology in the workplace and and what we could do about it. Uh, So I I went on the road, I was talking about this book and meeting lots of readers and hearing from lots of readers, and one of the most common pieces of feedback I got was, uh, let's say I agree with you about, you know, unintended consequences of technology in the workplace, what about what these technologies are doing in our personal lives, what about what's happening you know, when we're not at work on uh, the weekend at the evening? And they were expressing a sort of sense of urgency about uh, a perceived negative influence of digital technology in the personal life that uh, they really wanted to see addressed. And this was something that had shifted. You know, I've been writing about these issues for many, many years. It was really right around that 2016, about two years ago, that I really began to notice this shift where people were going from – telling self-deprecating jokes about how much they look at their phone to actually starting to get concerned about the impact of those phones and their ability to thrive as human beings. And so once I got that feedback from Deep Work, it became clear the next frontier to tackle when it comes to the intersection of technology and culture was going to be what's happening in our personal lives and in our quest to live meaningful and satisfied existences. How are new digital and online tools uh, played in this particular arena?
1: Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I'm also seeing in my work, um, both as a doctor, but also in the work that I do in the media, I'm just getting that sense more and more that people are aware now that actually digital media, for all its benefits, or for all its perceived benefits, I should say, and we're going to cover that in in the course of this conversation, no doubt, uh, there have been some unintended consequences. I'm meeting more and more people now who are choosing to go offline for a significant part of their recreational time, their personal time, their downtime. Um, and actually, the funny story there is that when you, when, when I first got introduced to the idea that you had a new book coming out, because we share a mutual publisher in Penguin, um, I thought, oh, great. I did see your TED Talk, which I thought was brilliant. And I thought, I'm going to just look you up. And I looked you up on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. I couldn't find you anywhere. And on further investigating, I realized that you actually have never had a social media channel. Is that correct?
0: Yes, that's true. Though there, there are, I should warn you, some fake Cal Newport accounts out there. So uh,
1: don't believe them if you see them. Okay, well, that's. I think that's a great place to really sort of dive in a little bit, because I think for certainly the majority of people who I see day to day and who I interact with, the idea of not having any social media presence at all feels like quite a revolutionary act in the 21st century. So I wonder if you could explain why you don't have a social media account.
0: Well, it's because I I work backwards from this philosophy of digital minimalism, which is essentially what I'm preaching. And what this philosophy says is you should figure out what's really important to you in your life, What are your values? What are the activities that are uh, a deep source of media satisfaction? And then work backwards from each of those to say, what's the best way, if any, to use technology to support this value? And then just let the answer to those questions decide what technology you use in your personal life. So it's a very intentional and selective approach. So there's things in my life that are important. I use technology to support them. Uh, But when I ask that question for each of these important things, what's the best way to use technology to support this thing in my life, the answer was never Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. So that's why they didn't make uh, make the cut. Now, I think for most people, the calculus they do is actually the opposite. I think most people, especially in the consumer West, are used to a maximalist mindset, where you look at things only in terms of the potential value or convenience they could bring you, and you really worry about missing out on any of that potential value and convenience. And so I think that's how a lot of people think about their digital lives. They're just worried about missing out on something that could bring value. Uh, The idea of not using Facebook, according to this mindset, is worrisome because you think about potential sources of value for Facebook that you're missing. It's like walking by the proverbial uh, money on the ground and not picking it up. But the minimalist says, actually, that's not how things work. If you focus uh, exclusively on a small number of things that are very useful and very valuable, and you keep your focus exclusively on those, you're going to end up better off than trying to fracture your focus among many, many different things that offer you only small wins. And so that's how I ended up never uh, signing up for any of these services.
1: Yeah, I mean – Cal, I've got to say, it, it, it feels like a very revolutionary thing to do. Because so I think many of us have stumbled into the digital world. You know, uh, there's a new technology. Oh, yeah, I'm going to sign up for it and use it. And it, I guess in some in some ways, this is really about purpose, isn't it? It's about what is the meaning and purpose in your life? What do you want to achieve? What brings you happiness? What What gives you your values? And therefore... How does technology support that rather than just, you know, you go all in with all technology and then figure out later how to, you know, how to, how to unwind it? Is that a fair summary of what you are trying to say? I think that's a good way of looking at it. I mean, the reason why
0: minimalist philosophies work is because uh, there's a real cost to clutter. And we often miss this. But when you clutter, whether it be your house or your digital lives, you can't just think about the value that each individual thing might bring you, because if you go into the house of a hoarder, you know someone who just has uh, their their rooms filled to the ceiling with junk, right? If you go to the house of a hoarder and point to any one individual thing, let's say an old birdhouse that's in a pile or whatever, they'll have some reason why there might be some value in keeping it. You know, oh, I need it because you never know. Like, I, I think my sister has this tree; and she might want it, or maybe someone will need it, or I might hang it up one day. Like, they have a reason. For everything that's in their house. But the negative impact of all that clutter far swaps out. Uh, All those positive benefits. And so it's the same thing uh, in your digital life. Like what what minimalists recognize uh, is that there's a real cost to all this clutter. If you just sign up for everything and you have all these different things pulling at your time and attention, the little values that they're bringing you uh, can't compensate for the overall negative cost of having such clutter. And in particular, it's all this uh, pulls on your time and attention is taking your time away from things that are much more valuable that you could be investing in. And so minimalists understand this basic mathematical formula that focusing most of your energy on a small number of very high value things is going to return in your life much more value than if you take that same attention and spread it out over a lot of lower value activities. So. Less really can be more. This is an idea that goes back to the H. Thoreau articulated it beautifully. It Walded. Uh, we saw it through the twentieth century, the Voluntary Simplicity movement. We saw it in the online Minimalist movement. I mean, it, 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 it's an idea that comes up again and again because it's true. Less is more. Less things, higher value, bigger return.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the the overarching um, sentiment in your philosophy that deeply, deeply resonates with me so much. I think. Um it, it's interesting talking to you. I recently released a book called the stress solution Cal and there's some very similar themes i've written about it from a different angle, but you know I talk about the impact of these things having on our relationships the the problem in society where now that um we almost need to teach delayed gratification now to ourselves to our children because our, our attention has been fractured so much by the way that we're living our lives today and, and I think the point you mentioned there, which is When you talk to people uh, about the the potential benefit, the potential negatives of technology, or in particular social media, um, like I posted a video on my Instagram a few days ago in terms of how we can, uh, you know, how we can start to reduce the digital load on our lives, yet still get some of the value. And, you know, I saw there was one negative comment saying, oh, so much anti-technology all the time, I'm sick of it. What about all the benefits that technology brings? and first of all, I'm not anti-technology, but it's really interesting that whenever we talk about these things, people often go to the benefit straight away, which is understandable. But you're saying that we're not taking into account the negatives enough. And so what are some of those negatives when our attention is constantly being fractured by our devices, by our notifications, by our email inbox, by whatever distraction we have in our life? What, are, you know, what does that do to us? Well, one of the, the primary
0: complaints I hear from people uh, about their current digital life is not really about the specifics of how useful is this particular tool or how useful is that particular tool. The real complaint seems to be more about autonomy. So what people are, are recognizing is that they're spending more time – using these devices and looking at their screens than they think is useful, they're spending more time than they know is healthy, uh, and they're increasingly feeling like what they believe and how they feel is being manipulated by sort of faceless algorithms. So I think this is where the sense of urgency came from. The question is not, oh, is this useless or useful? It's really about autonomy. Uh, Otherwise, smart and disciplined people are realizing that they're spending way more time than they want to on these devices. And these devices are having an impact on their beliefs and uh, emotions that feel like they're out of their control. And of course, we know from human psychology that when you start to lose Uh, autonomy when to use the technical term the the locus of control is shifted from the intrinsic towards the extrinsic or away from the uh, intrinsic area of the scale people start to get unhappy and so at the high level i think this is what's going on it's a loss of autonomy and then at the small scale there's lots of sort of short-term negative impacts that are specific uh, that these behaviors are creating such as the loss of solitude so if you strip away from people any time uh, where they're free from input from other minds, if you strip that out of your life, it's not good. You're, you're not able to process what's going on. You're not able to self-reflect and your, your brain begins to burn out. Um, and there's also the really big impact that digital interactions – do not play the same role in our mind that actual real-world conversation does. So people who spend more time doing digital interactions spend less time doing real-world conversations because they feel like, oh, I'm already checking that box. I'm being social. Look, I'm on Facebook all day. Uh, But our brain doesn't agree uh, that those are the same things. And so people are becoming increasingly lonely uh, and increasingly anxious and depressed as they use social media more. Not because social media is making them anxious or lonely. It's because it's replacing the stuff that was keeping them from being lonely. So there's the big picture issue of autonomy and then a bunch of small scale uh, acute uh, wounds that this behavior is causing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a certain irony in the name, isn't there? Social media um, in terms of in terms of what it's doing. I, I like what you're saying about solitude. And it's something that I've thought about a lot, which is this whole idea that, Um, downtime is being eroded from culture, from society. Um, So, you know, for argument's sake, 10, 15 years ago, I think if many people were standing in a cafe waiting for, you know, to be served by the barista, maybe they're waiting for five minutes in line, you know, they might have been people watching, they may have been, you know, sort of talking to some random people that they met, they might have bumped into one of their best friends, but now, the majority of us have got our heads stuck in our smartphones and actually we're oblivious to everything that's going on around us. And we're sort of filling every bit of downtime with noise. And so therefore, solitude and the ability to just self-reflect and, you know, daydream. These things are you know, are sort of being removed from society slowly and insidiously. And you think this is having a negative impact, don't you? It is. And it's a radical experiment.
0: And if you step back and think about it, never before in the history of the human species have we really had the capability of banishing every moment of solitude from our day. I mean, this required technological miracles. That basically be possible. We had to cover the entire world with high-speed, ubiquitous, wireless internet access, design these sort of semi-magical devices that could fit in your pocket and connect to this and at any moment give you any number of distractions or connections of thoughts from other minds. I mean it's a, it took really technological miracles to even try this experiment of can we banish every moment of solitude from our lives? Uh, And I am worried about it because, as you mentioned, there are, of course, uh, well-known positives of solitude. So if you don't have solitude in your life, you're losing those. Uh, But also the data, I think, is worrisome. So for me, I think looking at the mental health statistics of the young generation uh, is useful because they take this independent variable of time-spit connected and they push it to the extreme. So if you're going to see the dependent variable be mental health outcomes here, if you're going to see what is the impact of solitude. the place you're going to see whatever that is most pronounced is if you study the mental health lives of young people, because, of course, uh, they're the most connected. And the data there seems really alarming. There really does seem to be a strong increase in uh, anxiety and anxiety-related disorders uh, among the youngest generation. Uh, it's pretty clear that this is probably not just a, a reporting effect, because hospitalizations for suicide attempts have gone up uh, along with these, these increases in these statistics. And the demographers and psychologists who are looking at this have been, as far as I can tell, uh, not able to make any of the other hypotheses stick outside of this lines up exactly with the rise of caustic of connectivity. So I see what's happening with the the young people today as the, the digital canary in the coal mine, Bad things happen the more you try to take uh, solitude out of your life.
1: Yeah, I guess before we go into some of the sort of solutions that you propose in your new book, I'd just love to cover a little bit about, um, well, cover a little bit that you mentioned in deep work, which is this whole idea that constantly distracting ourselves, jumping from task to task, is a burden on the brain. It's, it's actually, it's causing problems and it's not allowing us to do deep, meaningful work. And I wonder if you could just explain what some of those problems are and how, obviously you've made that choice that you think you can get an edge in your career by actually not having these distractions so you can focus on deep, meaningful work. And I've got to say on a personal level, when I, you know, I've, I've released two books now and th- so there's two moments in my life in the last three years where I've had to sort of shut off for a period of a few months and really sort of dive deep. And I've got to say, it's one of the most satisfying parts of my year because it feels less transient, less superficial. It feels as though I'm really actually trying to go deep inside myself, trying to create something fresh and new and exciting to put out into the world. And I, I wouldn't be able to do that if I was constantly being distracted. So, you know, what are some of these problems that you you see maybe with colleagues, with the public, uh, with young people by constantly being distracted? Well, I, I think the number one uh negative impact
0: in the world of work right now when it comes to attention is that uh, we have drastically underestimated the cost of context switching with our attention. And this is something that the psychological literature essentially rediscovered uh, only recently. And so there's researchers like Sophie Leroy, who came back to psychology after spending time in The business world and actually as a consultant and see the changes that were happening as tools like email uh, became widespread. And she came back into psychology, uh, she's now a professor, um, and said, wait a second, we have to study this. And so she helped kick off this modern study of what happens to your attention when you do things like switch it very frequently. And the, the conclusions there are pretty clear. There's a drastic hit to cognitive performance when you change what you're paying attention to from one thing to another, and when you bring it back from that thing to uh, the original target. Your cognitive capacity uh, significantly diminishes, and this effect could take a while to dissipate. And so what's happening is we have this, it's almost comedically, or at least darkly comedic, we have this profound mismatch between how we designed work uh, in the age of digital networks and how our brains actually function. So once we got tools like email or Slack or SMS that allowed us to very easily with low friction communicate with people – what we tried to do was take the old Paleolithic model that we used to use where there is three or four of us hunting a mastodon, which is just unstructured ad hoc conversation. Let's figure this out on the fly. Hey, the mastodon's going that way. You go there, I'll go here, you throw the sphere, right? This this instinctual small group based coordination, and we tried to scale it up to big organizations. And we ended up with a workflow where people are just constantly communicating, unstructured ad hoc conversations with people in your team, people not in your team, with your managers, with the HR department, with whatever. Uh, And this is fundamentally a mismatch with the way our brains work because it forces us to continually context shift so that we can manage these conversations. And the constant context shifting is like taking a reverse nootropic. It's like taking a drug that's going to make your brain uh, perform significantly below its capacity. And so that's why people are very frustrated with work. Uh, That's why people are burning out. That's why people aren't getting as much done. This is why the non-industrial productivity metrics have stagnated throughout this whole period where we made unprecedented investments to make communication in the workplace more uh, fast and and more flexible. Uh, And so this is sort of the broad view here is that this – work based on constant uh, attention switching to manage all of these ad hoc conversations is just using the brain in a way that the brain was not meant to be used and so uh it's causing lots of negative consequences we think we're being futuristic but we're actually just being paleolithic and
1: try to scale it up in yeah. the modern workplace so it's having a huge impacts on our work productivity um what about our personal lives what's it doing there well there's a couple of things
0: happening in our personal lives i i think one of the biggest uh Really the two biggest costs that all of this uh, glancing and looking at our screen and interacting on our screen, there's really been two big costs. One is that it has allowed us to actually avoid having to invest the time and resources necessary to develop more high-quality leisure activities. Uh, But it turns out we really need higher quality leisure activities. This is an idea that goes all the way back to Aristotle writing the Nicomedean Ethics, that we need activities done just for the activity's sakes if we want to uh, be able to find joy and beauty in a life that's often full of, you know, hardships and things that we can't control. Um, So we have this craving for quality, uh, and it creates a void if we don't have it in our life. But we have these constant distractions can distract us just enough that we could tolerate not having this quality in our life. And I think this is causing, you know, real issues in people's resilience and happiness. Um, And then the second issue of all these sort of quick interactions is that we're unable to actually uh, focus on a moment. So in a social interaction, actually get all the benefit out of that social interaction or uh, being outside with a beautiful sunset, actually fully extracting all the beauty that we've evolved to appreciate and enjoy. And so in multiple ways, it's impoverishing uh, our daily experience of life.
1: I gave a talk last year at a very high profile technology company in London. And I we we'll talked talk to them about health and happiness and how one of my recommendations has been always to see if you can switch off your modern technology for ideally 90 minutes, but if not maybe 60 minutes before bed, just to help you not be exposed to the blue light so that you're not being overly stimulated so that you can start to switch off a little bit. And what was incredible is that at the end of my talk, a... A young chap, uh, maybe sort of mid to late twenties, came up and he said, "Hey, Dr. Chasity, look, I really enjoyed your talk, um, but I, I was still a bit confused. You know, if I switch my phone off for sixty minutes before bed, what am I going to do?" Yep. Uh, and uh, he wasn't kidding. He was being completely sincere. He's he was, you know, he's obviously very you know, to get a job there, I'm sure he was very able, um, very competent at his job to get such a a high profile job. But at the same time, it it really, it really struck home with me that actually there is a new generation now um, of people who are growing up unable to actually spend time without being switched on and without their devices. So that was extremely worrying. Is that something you've seen or you've come across in your work? Well, people are terrified. I mean, they're,
0: they're, Terrified about uh, being a load with their minds. <laughs> you know, what, I mean, it's yeah. not just that they don't know what to do; that it actually could be really scary. Um, you know, we shouldn't underestimate the degree to which. Some people use the constant distraction to just uh, stay away from things that are distressing in their life or things that really require work they need to think about. Uh, They're also just to stay away from the hard self-reflection that's needed to, let's say, transition into adulthood and figure out uh, the structure of values and principles around Mm -hmm. which you're going to structure your existence. Uh, Time alone with your thoughts is difficult and avoiding it is not a solution. So I think what what that young man brought up uh, at the end of your talk, is actually a very widespread and serious problem, especially among younger people who who did who grew up with these technologies and have avoided that sort of uh, solitude. Uh, and I think it's very problematic. And I have to say, it's hard. You know, I uh, we could talk about it more, but I ran this experiment last January where I had 1,600 people uh, leave all of their optional technologies in their personal life for 30 days as part of doing a declutter, the transform into a minimalist lifestyle. And a lot of them reported that same concern that at first it was really hard but by the time they got to the end of the 30 days and they had done the self-work uh, to get comfortable with their mind and they had put in the effort necessary to cultivate some high quality analog activities by the time they got to the end of just 30 days they had largely lost their taste for a lot of that low quality digital mindless tapping and swiping and so it seems like a very intractable problem um, But the solution might actually be closer in the temporal sense that most people might actually guess.
1: Yeah. So a couple of things keep coming up here in my head. One of them is, um, you know, you mentioned at the start, the intention, the intention behind what you want to do with your life. And therefore, that should dictate how you use technology. But it's sort of, you know, in many ways, it's similar to uh, lifestyle choices that people engage in. So let's say you don't like your life or you don't like your job and it's super stressful, then you will often uh, use alcohol, let's say. I don't mean you, one might use alcohol uh, to help numb that so they don't have to think about the harsh reality of their life. Um, some may use sugar in the evenings to deal with you know, the stresses in their life and therefore trying to consciously give up sugar or reduce it ultimately is destined for failure unless the underlying stresses behind it are are addressed. And and I guess it's how you use it. You know, if someone has got very calm, stress-free life and they're using alcohol, let's say, intentionally to help, you know, to enjoy a social interaction with their friends, that's probably going to have a very different impact on their body than if actually they're using it to escape from various things in their life that they don't like. So that's one sort of similarity I can see between what you're talking about and and sort of these lifestyle choices people make. But also you mentioned this, this, this trial that you did, and I, I'd love to hear more about this, um, about these 1,600 people who gave up, uh, and I'd love to find out a bit more what exactly they gave up for 30 days. But it reminds me again, a little bit of um, when people come off sugar and they are, you know, some people say, I need to have three cups of sh- three spoons of sugar in my coffee. But once you've actually kicked that habit 30 days later, your taste buds have changed and now if you have a coffee with three sugars in, it, it's going to taste disgusting and super sweet whereas four weeks ago that was your norm so i guess what i'm trying to say is that you this is a message of hope really isn't it you're saying that actually we can do things about this and it maybe is not as tricky as we think it might be
0: i think that's absolutely right um uh, it this is the shift that i've observed uh maybe about two or three years ago uh you know, we are comfortable saying, "Hey, if someone I know is drinking too much, that of the, the pain, that that's a problem. They should fix it. If someone I know is addictively eating and becoming morbidly obese." Our culture says that's a problem, we should fix it. Three years ago, we weren't thinking that way about numbing yourself with digital technology. It was like, no, nah, that's a kid. Like, we use screens. Isn't it funny? You know, oh, I'm addicted to my phone. It was a self deprecating joke. Yeah. And that's really shifted. Uh, one of the reasons I wrote this book now is that among my readers, I'm starting to see a shift in the culture in which they are starting to see this behavior going on with their devices as uh, not just innovation and fun, uh, but actually uh, worrisome. And so to me, I think that shift is really important. And I think the analogies to uh, health and fitness is very useful. And this is why the, the premise behind my book is that tricks and good intentions and tips is not enough, that you need a philosophy like digital minimalism, something that's grounded in your values, something that you can believe in, something that you can base your decisions on. Uh, I'm motivated in part by watching what works in health and fitness right so you know we saw in the 20th century the rise of uh, highly processed foods and along with that in the west came a lot of health issues heart disease obesity metabolic syndrome more broadly um, and what we noticed was that tips and good intentions weren't enough right I mean the NHS could put out some good guidelines but how many people was that actually uh, bringing back from really unhealthy lifestyles but on the other hand if you think who are the healthiest people I know Almost certainly they have some sort of philosophy around their health and fitness that's internally consistent, that, that speaks to their values that they really believe in, right? Like maybe they're vegan or they're paleo. There's something that is bigger than just assorted tips and tricks. And so I think that's a really good analogy because that's what that's what motivated me to think, well, what is the veganism or paleo of the digital world? Yeah. What's the name, the philosophy that you can buy into and, and make a lifestyle? Because I think that's what we need if we recognize the, the scope of the problem, nothing short of that is probably going to lead to good solutions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so what did these um, 1,600 people that you took through this 30-day digital declutter, what actually did they have to give up?
0: So the terminology that we used the declutter was optional personal technologies. Uh, so we weren't dealing with your professional life, uh, so as I told them, uh, you can't use this declutter as an excuse to stop answering your boss's emails, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and we use the term optional uh, to be, this is something you could stop using without serious negative consequences. So for example, you know, social media, reading news online, video games, streaming media, for most people, you could easily step away from these uh, without a serious consequence in a 30 day period. But there's other things like, oh, I use text messaging uh, to know when my daughter is ready to get picked up from school after practice. That would be a non-optional use of technology. If you stepped away from that for 30 days, uh, your daughter is going to have to you know, live at the playing field for the next month, so that's not optional. So that was the terminology we used. And then the other uh, caveat I added is, okay, if there's a broad technology in your personal life in which there's just a few specific uses that are not optional, uh, specify them. So say, okay, I I will use text messaging, but only for ABC uh, and and for nothing else. And so we're really trying to strip out uh, everything in terms of digital behavior in your personal life that you really could get away with taking a
1: break from. Okay, so people did this and um, did they find it difficult to, you know, to cut these things out of their life?
0: People reported it was hard for somewhere between seven to 14 days. Uh, And then then it got less difficult. Uh, One young woman, for example, said uh, she was so used to checking stuff on her phone that after she took off all these apps from her phone at the beginning of the clutter, what she found herself doing was compulsively checking the weather app because this was the last thing on her phone that actually had updating information, that actually had information you could check. And she said for the first week, she could tell you like hourly updates on the weather in a dozen major cities around the country because she just had this compulsive need, I need to see information. Uh, but the same young woman said by day 10, there was no problem. Uh, and then the important thing was, it wasn't just that you were detoxing. That's sort of the beginning of the declutters. You, you detox from the, the compulsive need uh, to use these technologies. Where the real value starts to come in is that you're also supposed to use this as a period of reflection, to figure out what's important to me and also to rediscover alternative analog activities. And it was really this latter thing, the alternative analog activities that made a really big difference. And this was a surprise for me. Uh, As people rediscovered the type of analog activities they used to love, they correspondingly found that their taste for low-quality digital distraction
1: began to diminish. That, this is this sounds like a really key point. So it's not just reducing the use of the technology, it's finding alternatives, you know, I guess what you're saying is this what, what, what you mean when you're talking about high quality leisure activities? Is, is this kind of, in a nutshell, what you're what you're teaching these uh, people to do?
0: Yeah. So things that you do just for the sake of doing it, just for the enjoyment of doing it. And the more that it actually has a component of socializing or skill to it, it tends to be the more value that people get out of it. And so this was really the secret sauce of the declutter was you figure out, okay – Here's what I really important to me, and then second, you match those to some analog activities, right? Okay, this is really important to me, so I'm going to go do this. I'm going to join this community group. Um, I really enjoy like fitness and health is important. I'm going to join uh, the football, you know, the pick football team, or whatever it is, right? Um, and it's it's this uh, value driven, high quality analog uh, activity. Uh, This is what it seems like – and again, this was a surprise to me. It's like this is what all these billions of dollars were invested in trying to trick us out of – into forgetting. Uh, This whole attention – digital attention economy is largely based on uh, let's push that out of people's lives and then we'll be the thing that fills the void. Uh, And so to the point now that after this experiment – I change the way I talk about this to people. I say, you know what, you can make this much easier if you actually spend some time before you do the declutter, start with the analog, right? Because if you already have those in place, you're actually going to find the stepping away from the technology piece much easier. And so that, that's one of the uh, lessons I learned and was surprised by, by that particular experiment.
1: Yeah, that is, is super fascinating. And then, and, you know, when you when you mentioned... Analog, it it got me thinking about music, and I think there's something in the way we consume music, which is very reflective of the whole digital revolution. In that, um, you know, I remember as a teenager, you know, I I couldn't wait to queue up and buy the latest CD for one of my favourite bands, and you know, you'd bring it home, you'd have a lot of um, pride in, in in the CD and the artwork. You'd spend I'd spend hours in the evening listening, and actually you know seeing you know who recorded which songs and who wrote the songs and all this kind of stuff really you know taking real pride in it and you know over the last 5 10 years probably longer actually as music has become a lot more disposable and easy to access we become very um blasé about it you know very few people now relative to the past listen to albums in their entirety the way the artist has actually put 12 songs together for you to go on a learning experience you know a musical odyssey a musical experience and a few years ago actually i i'd had enough and i thought okay i'm getting back to basics and i, I went into uh, a music store and i said right well, i want to buy a cd player really high quality cd player i'm a bit of a snob when it comes to sound quality and he goes yeah and he was showing me all these ones with wi-fi connectivity and Bluetooth capability. I said, have you got anything that doesn't have that capability? And he just looked at me and said, well, yeah, we do. But why would you want that? You know, you won't be able to stream, you won't be able to do this. I said, that's exactly what I'm looking for. And he was really surprised. And I bought an old school, you know, really high quality CD player. And I now listen to CDs. And I'm hoping, I'm trying to teach my children to actually not constantly flip between songs that, hey, let's just press play and let's listen to these things. you know, from start to finish and obviously CDs are digital, but would this qualify as an analog activity for you? Uh, well, yes, I think it definitely does. I mean, a lot of
0: people reported to me that getting back to things like played vital records, uh, or CD albums, but going from albums that are streaming was one of the activities uh, that they had forgotten. Uh, there's actually a large movement. The journalist David Sachs has this great book from a couple of years ago called The Revenge of Analog. And it really shows the surprising way in which some of these analog leisure activities, in particular vinyl albums, are increasing. Album sales are up for the first time uh, in decades. And so I think it's an example of a high-quality analog activity. It's also a great metaphor for the experience of high-quality analog. Because if you sit down and listen to an album, uh, in the moment, it can be more difficult or require more effort than just streaming songs you love from a streaming service, for every song you like, every song you're excited to hear from. But somehow the experience in totality of going through the whole experience with the album, sitting there, getting lost in the music, getting a sense of what the artist was trying to do, in totality, you you come away much, much more satisfied. And so that's a great metaphor for high-quality analog versus low-quality digital distraction, is that, yes, it requires more effort. And yes, in the moment, uh, you might not have, you know, whatever, the same sense of, I love this, there might be more negatives, but the overall experience mm-hmm. of high-quality leisure, just like when you sit down and listen to that whole album, uh, the whole overall experience is just much, much better and more humanizing. And so, this is why I'm not surprised that a lot of people are doing what you're doing or what I did and actually getting back into albums because it's a, a microcosm of
1: this larger truth. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that I'm, as a, as a father of two young kids, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, this, if I'm honest, this digital world sometimes this fast paced, everything now, you don't have to wait for anything, sort of pace of life. It concerns me and, you know, I, like all parents, am trying my best to do what I can for my children to help, you know, protect against it or navigate, uh, it's probably a better term, navigate this digital world. Um, and so, you know, let's see, let's see how, how far I get on with that. Uh, but I'd love to hear some of your tips on that. But I I think on that, um, you mentioned in your, your new book about uh, Steve Jobs and his original vision for the iPhone. And obviously, we're talking about music a lot and phones and, what, 20 years ago, phones made phone calls. Uh, nowadays, phones do a lot more than, than just make phone calls. And so I'd love to hear more about what was Steve Jobs' original vision. But before you answer that, I'd love to know, do you have a smartphone? Uh, I do have a smartphone. Uh... It's quite old. Uh,
0: <laughs> my my uh, wife wanted me to get it around the time our, our first kid was born. And I like it because uh, we can send photos of if I'm away. She can text me photos of what our kids are up to. And it has this Google Maps thing on it, which is great. Uh, but I have no games on it. I have no social media on it. I don't have uh, the email app set up on it. Uh, and so I'm probably using this phone a lot like
1: Steve Jobs actually originally envisioned. And how did he originally envisage the iPhone?
0: Yeah, here's the interesting thing about jobs. I went back and researched this. So I, uh, I talked to one of the original team leads of the iPhone team leading up to its release in 2007. Uh, then I went back and I, I rewatched the keynote release of the iPhone. And the surprising thing you learn if you go back and look at this is that the way we use our phones today, which is primarily a source of uh, delivering information that we check a lot, we check 85 to 125 times a day. Uh, this was nowhere to be found in the original vision of the iPhone. Uh, what Steve Jobs was trying to do was take two things that people loved to do already and for, had loved to do for a long time, which is listen to music and talk to people on the phone and make the experience better. This is what Jobs was about, was not trying to teach people new behaviors like, hey, you need to be clicking on this or looking at this screen. He was all about taking things that people loved and giving them an even better experience. So the original iPhone, th- there was uh, two main pitches for it. One, you don't have to carry a separate iPod and a separate cell phone. We're integrating them together, so now you only need one device. So here's these two things you're already doing. We're making the experience better because you only have to have one device. Uh, And two, this is a better phone than any other phone. The interface is better. The voicemail works better. It's easier to find someone uh, in your, your address book. Jobs was really essentially almost personally insulted by how clumsy he felt the interfaces were on existing cell phones at the time. And so that was the vision. Uh, it's a, a really, really good cell phone uh, that integrates a really good music player. Two things that we already love to do, uh, put together to a more beautiful experience. There's no app store. Uh, there's no idea that this is something that you would you would check all the time. Did uh, it occur to Steve Jobs? That you would, the question, you would, you the
1: it really is, counter. to hear that because I think many of us probably just assumed that this was the vision and the vision is now here and part of our day-to-day lives so that's that's fascinating it makes me think of a friend of mine actually who uh, recently told me that he's sick of being distracted every time he listens to music on his phone so like many of us we might be listening to something but we'll you know obviously it may not apply to you because you don't have social media um platforms but he said, you know, I'll, I'll be listening to something, but I'll also be flicking on Instagram and Twitter and then I might check my email. So, you know, multitasking whilst listening to music. And so what he's done, and he says a lot of his friends are doing this, he's bought a, a portable music device, you know, where he can actually, when he's listening to music, actually he puts his phone off or an airplane mode puts it in his bag and he just concentrates on the music he's listening to. Uh, you know, in many ways, what, what, I'm sort of talking about what you're talking about is trying to get back to what existed in the world. Not that long ago. Yeah. We're not talking that far, uh, back in history.
0: Uh what we're doing today that feels so fundamental is so new. It's so arbitrary, and it, it's it can be hard because you know it's like a fish that doesn't know what water is because it's always been all around it. Uh, this notion that you're you're uh, constantly checking a screed that's delivering sort of algorithmically selected news and intermittently reinforcement social approval indicators. This is like so arbitrary that to you know a time traveler from 15 years ago, it might even look dystopian. Uh, we just became used to it because it gradually slipped up on us. And actually most people, as you mentioned earlier, it's not like they signed up for this. I mean if you bought an iPhone in 2007, you didn't buy it because you're like, I want to check this thing 85 times a day. I mean you, you – what did this music player was beautiful, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And you signed up for Facebook in 2004, like a lot of my my friends did. They're like, this is a novelty. Mainly, I'm just kind of interested in what the relationship status is of various people at my school. <laughs> yeah, Got yeah. 20 minutes a time a week, right? This idea that you would uh, you would check it on Facebook all day long. Like, no one signed up for that, right? I mean, this is stuff that that, uh, emerged over time. And so now we're in this weird state where, to an observer from 15 years ago, to Steve Jobs from 2007, is almost horrifying. Uh, And I think we're just starting to realize that, like, oh, this isn't fundamental. This is actually a lot weirder (laughs) than we thought. I mean, we're just too used to it, but this is weird what we're doing right now.
1: Yeah. I I mean, you know, we did stumble into it. We didn't know this is where things were going. And I think in the first chapter of your new book, you, you mentioned that uh, these tools are not as innocent as they seem, which I found a very interesting phrase. And that's possibly something that I think society is becoming more and more aware of. But there's a lot of people who I think, um, who I talk to think, you know what, they're really not that bad as these things. They're, 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 there's plenty of uses for them and they don't see the potential downsides so I'd love to know why you say they're not as innocent as they seem. Um, and also you mentioned the phrase, I think you're, you're quoting a, a former Google engineer saying when, they, when he talks about these devices as being you know, a slot machine, um, quite a provocative term. And I wonder if you could explain Right. That's Tristan
0: Harris, a former Google engineer who has become essentially a whistleblower uh, on the digital industry saying, hey, uh, this is what we're doing or what we were doing. Well, I used to to try to get you to use these devices a lot more. Uh, So to give you a little context, there was a big shift in the way that uh, a lot of these social media platforms in particular operate uh, right around the time that they shifted from the desktop over to mobile, which was also right around the time that uh, the investors of these companies got pretty at and said, we want IPOs, we want big IPOs, so we can make a big return on our investment. And so companies like Facebook said, okay, we have to significantly increase our revenue now. How are we going to best monetize our users? And the answer that came back is, if we could put this on a mobile phone, that means our users, in theory, could be accessing this all the time, which is not the way people use these things before that, right? But they said, in theory, that's possible. The question is, how do we get them to do it? How do we get them to pull out our device and load up our app and enter in information about themselves and be shown ads? Like how, how, This is a really odd behavior. This is not the way that these platforms worked on the desktop. People checked in on them maybe once a day or a couple times a week. Um, and so one of the things they did was attention engineer the services to try to induce more compulsive use uh, in their users. And in doing so, they borrowed some ideas from Las Vegas Casino Gambling and in particular slot machine design. So what they learned from slot machine design is that if you could give intermittent reinforcement uh, in terms of the rewards that you get for clicking on the app, then people are going to find themselves to be disproportionately compelled to click on it. So if, hey, if I click on this button on my phone, I sometimes get a reward. And if I click on it, sometimes I don't. Or maybe even sometimes I get a near miss, like something kind of interesting, but sometimes it's a jackpot, like something very interesting. That plays with our dopamine systems in a, in a weird way that slot machines have long since exploited that makes you click on that thing way more than you need to. Uh, but their, their problem was, there's not enough rewards generated by our social media service, because the way people used to use social media was, you know you updated your profile sometimes. Uh, and so there wasn't a lot to see. You, know, you might log in to see what your friends are up to, but then there's no reason to log in again until the next day, at least. right? So they said, we need more rewards. And this is where they innovated things like the like button, or the heart in Instagram, uh, or photo auto-tagging. So you could get a notification that, hey, someone has tagged you in a photo. The primary purpose of these things soon emerged that it created a much richer stream of rewards. There was more things for you to see when you clicked on the app. Uh, and not only were there more things to see, but they would sometimes be there, sometimes not, uh, to the point where there's rumors that both Facebook and Instagram will actually artificially Batch likes or hearts uh, to deliver to you to make sure that the, the stream of these rewards is more intermittent so that you'll, you'll have more of that effect. And then the final thing that makes these really, really compelling is that uh, most of these rewards are social approval indicators. So they're indications that someone was thinking about you. And the way our brains have evolved is there's few rewards more compelling than encountering evidence that someone is thinking about you or saying something about you. And so this whole social media experience where all day long you're getting retweets and likes and tags that are all social approval indicators arriving intermittently, that was all constructed. None of that was in the original social media experience. None of that is necessary for the claim, the values of social media, which is connecting to people and seeing what people are up to. Uh, And these were primarily developed to A – hijack your brain so that you compulsively click on the app, and B, to give them a much richer stream of information about you so that they could sell you uh, much more expensive ads.
1: Yeah, it's incredible once we hear the backgrounds as to how this is all being created and really highlights the point you make so beautifully in the book that technology is not neutral, which I think is is a really important thing for all of us to remember when we're using it. Um, just to be clear, Cal, you're not anti-technology, are you? No, I'm a computer science professor.
0: I sort of make a living researching and advancing technology.
1: Yeah, so it's not about saying tech is either good or bad. It's it's almost um, really getting back to what you said right at the start, which is, you know, what's the intention behind your use? Uh, and I think if we all got a little bit clearer on that, we could probably get more of the upsides with less of the downsides. Um, One thing I just wanted to touch on before we sort of close down the conversation is um, you talk a little bit about the impact on your relationships when you stop clicking like. And I found that fascinating. Um, What is the impact on your relationships?
0: Yeah, I argue that if you stop clicking like or leaving comments on social media, almost certainly your social life will significantly strengthen and the reason this is true is, as I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the literature is making it increasingly clear that digital interactions just don't scratch the same itch as real-world conversation. Uh, this is why when people replace real-world conversation increasingly with digital interaction, they get lonelier because it's not that the – digital interaction makes them lonely, it's the, they're losing the massive benefits they would otherwise get from real world conversation. So what a lot of minimalists do is they try to reframe the way they think about digital interaction so that they don't see it as just another form of being social and instead see it as something that's maybe just logistical. Like, yeah, I could, a way to find out a friend is in town so that I could get in touch so we could meet up or text messaging is a way to, uh You know, help coordinate, hey, I'm over here, do you want to come over for a drink, right? Uh, But not a substitute or alternative form of social interaction. So one way to force that mindset shift is stop interacting with people on social media uh, and to the extent possible on text messaging as well. So don't click like, don't leave comments. If you do that... Your mind can no longer use the excuse of, well, I've been interacting with this person, so I'm being social. If you're not interacting with people on social media, your craving to be social will drive you to the real-world conversation you need. And so this will much strengthen your social life. It's true if you stop clicking like or leaving comments, there's a lot of weak tie friendships that will disappear, the friendships that exist only uh, in this digital space. Uh, but we have no reason to believe that weak tie friendships are at all important to thrive as a social human being, so I think that's fine. You need to relocate your social life to the real world. Uh, tech tools like social media or text messaging are mainly useful in this context only in that they can help you do more, better, and richer real-world interaction. That's really the only type of interaction uh, that, that's going to satisfy your need to be social.
1: Yeah, I think it's the evolutionary biologist, as a um, it professor, Robin Dunbar, I think, talks about how that our brains have evolved to really know only 150 people. And um, it's incredible that the majority of people have way more so-called friends on this or followers on their social media channels, um, which really begs the question, you know, how many of these are high quality interactions? And, you know, these things can always be misconstrued I want to make it clear to people that I appreciate that I am on social media and um I'm not trying to be a hypocrite here I'm simply trying to raise awareness of a the great work that you're doing Cal but also just to just to highlight for people how are they consuming their social media what impact is it having on their lives I argue the case in in the stress solution about that we um you know as you just said really I didn't really think about it from this perspective but the fact that if we're constantly seeing what our friends are up to, their baby photos, their holiday snaps, where they've been, what they had for dinner last night, we feel less of an urge actually to see them in real life because we sort of think, you know, we've kept up to date with them, even though actually, you know, digital communication is not the same as real, deep, meaningful human interaction. Um, So I I think it's i really like that you stop clicking like and your relationships improve um before we wrap it up uh cal you you also mentioned the the amish community in your book and i think many of us would feel that the amish don't use technology much but um you're saying that it's a little bit different than that yeah
0: they're an interesting uh they're an interesting case study uh because it turns out that the, the popular belief that they just froze their technology at a certain time period in the past is actually not right. Uh, in fact, if you spend time uh, among Yamash, you'll see that there's a lot of modern technology they use. I mean, they'll have disposable diapers, there'll be diesel generators, uh, they'll have you know powerful tractors, they use chemical fertilizers. I mean, there, there's really nothing, you'll see, oh, my favorite example is you'll see you know, young Yamash children rollerblading, right? Uh, so what's going on? What they're doing is uh, taking intentional living and pushing it to an extreme. So the way that the Amish encounter technology is, they say our primary goal is to keep our community strong. That's that's our main intention, everything else is supported to that. So when new technology comes along, they say, all right, the question is, will this make our community stronger or weaker? Uh, and, and that's how they decide whether or not to adopt it. In fact, they'll typically choose a sort of alpha geek to try it out for a while uh, and observe what's the impact. Does it make our community stronger or weaker? Uh, and that's how they make the decision. So that's why they're happy to have disposable diapers or a solar panel, but they're very worried about the automobile because you know that leads people to drive away, leave the community, go other places, and that weakens the community. Uh, So why are they relevant? Well, I I don't think that we should all join uh, old-order Amish communities. There's uh, obviously a lot of issues with what's going on uh, with that particular lifestyle. But I think they're important because they're uh, an extreme version of a principle that's useful for minimalists, which is this idea that intentionality trumps convenience. So for the Amish, it's incredibly inconvenient, all these technologies they don't use because it would hurt their value of strong community, and yet somehow against all odds, this religious order has survived into the 21st century. Uh, and the reason it, it has, in part, is because the value that people get from feeling like they're living very intentionally far swaps the negative cost of, say, inconvenience. Uh, and I think that's a really important value when you're thinking about a minimalist approach to your digital life is don't underestimate how much positive return you're going to get just by simply saying, I'm in control. Making choices that are based on my values. That's going to carry you much, much farther uh, than the little occasional inconveniences or missed value that that intentionality is going to incur.
1: Yeah, Cal, that's so profound. I've I've written that down actually. Intentionality trumps convenience. I'm going to be pondering that, I think, for the next few hours. There's There's something really powerful in that. And Uh, just hearing that phrase has already had an impact on me. So thank you for that. Look, um, Cal, I always like to finish off uh, the conversations with people with some sort of, hopefully, some inspiring thoughts or some actions that people who are listening can use to immediately improve the quality of their lives. And obviously, I would highly recommend that people buy your book, Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World to really hear the background, but also some really great suggestions on what we can all do or think about doing to help improve our interactions with the digital world. Um, but you're someone who, you know, is very productive, is happy, got a family life, got strong relationships, yet is also, um, you know, doing really well with it, their career, yet you are managing to do all of that in spite of not having any social media channels, and I think that's very empowering for people to hear, to hear that it is possible to be successful, um, and and happy and productive, and not be on social media. So that is a possibility for people who want to go down that route. But of course, not everyone is going to want to go down that route. So, you know, can you leave the listener with some top tips that they might think about applying in their own life?
0: Well, if you're interested in digital minimalism.
1: I mean, I'm convinced the most
0: effective way to make this transformation is to do something like the 30-day digital declutter. But if you're looking to experiment with it a little bit before taking that plunge, there's there's a few small things you can do right away that are going to give you big results. Uh, So the first is take off of your smartphone any app in which someone makes money every time you click on it, right? So. Transform your smartphone into a useful device that does not have those tempting distractions. So I'm not asking you to quit anything yet. You still have access to all of those new feeds and social media through your browser. I'm just getting rid of uh, the ability to uh, check those at any moment. So that could have a big effect. The the second small tip that gives a big uh, reward is start engineering more occasions in your daily life in which you do things without your phone. Right? Uh, This can be scary at first. So maybe you want to start small, like I'm going to the corner store and back, but try to have more and more occasions of longer and longer times where you are just without your phone. It's just you and your mind out there encountering the world. That's going to give you huge benefits. And third, uh, right away. Start systematically cultivating those type of high-quality analog activities we've been talking about again and again. Put those back in your life. Uh, Few things are more effective in reducing your taste for the unnecessary or low-quality digital distraction than having these type of uh, high-quality pursuits, right? high-quality leisure. So uh, take any app off your phone where people make money when you click on it go places without your phone, start adding back high quality analog leisure. This will get you a, a long way towards minimalism while you're still pondering whether or not the, the declutter is right for you. Uh, and hopefully that'll give you a strong enough uh, experience that you'll, you'll go all in and make the final transition uh, to this type of lifestyle.
1: Yeah, Cal, that's brilliant. Really three fantastic tips. That's a really good sort of jumping off point for people who might feel a little bit intimidated, but think, okay, I'm just going to you know, just dip my feet in the water and see how it feels. I think those three things will have really, really high impacts very, very quickly for a lot of people and I just wonder if you could just expand finally on these analog activities. Have you got a list of some um, you know various analog activities? The reason I asked this is because no doubt there will be some people listening very much like that chap at that technology talk I gave who who are confused as to what can i what can I do? If I don't have my phone, clearly that doesn't apply to, to to everyone. But just for those people who might be uh, concerned, have you got a sort of a, a short list of potential analog activities that they might be able to do? Sure. Well, at,
0: at the high level, what's important is that their activities uh that you do just for the sake of the activity. So the value is intrinsic. Uh, and if it requires you to develop, apply, get rewards for having skill, that's good. And if it has a social component, that's good. Uh, so in my experience, for example, there's lots of things to, just to give you some uh, short examples. Uh, actually, reading, you would be surprised. A lot of people rediscovered the library. Uh, this idea of just going and serendipitously discovering uh, an assorted variety of books and then bringing them home and reading. Uh, music is certainly something. So, so your experience you talked about earlier uh, is not rare. So, going through the effort of building up a really high quality sound system, finding like analog albums, sitting there and listening to them, learning the, the whole repertoire of a particular musician, this is high reward. Uh Sports activities is something that comes up often. People joined, uh leagues or pickup teams and start to, to, to relearn various sports skills. Uh, a lot of people got into like art and poetry. Uh, so people who used to paint got back to painting. People who used to write uh, got back to writing. Board games was a big thing. People Definitely got back in the board one. game night. having a regular group of people to get together uh, to actually uh, sit there and play games. And then skilled hobbies was the other thing that was really big. So uh, woodworking or this whole DIY maker culture, you know, where you, you you make interesting things potentially with electronic components and 3D printing. And uh, then this whole maker movement uh, is yeah. something that was really big as well. I mean, so that's just a short list among a lot of possibilities. But, but but these are the types of activities I'm talking about when I say high quality. Yeah, animal I love
1: that. And I think that just gives a few examples to people who, who may not know where to start. And I'm a huge fan of the whole board game idea. That's something that as a family, my wife and I are putting a lot more focus into because I think it, it just is a great way to spend time together as a family. It, it encourages concentration, mindfulness, um, you know, having to wait for things, having to, you know, really, you know, I think that's a high quality analog interaction that we experience benefits uh, from as a family. And, you know, if anyone's listening to this and thinks that they might want to get back into that with their own kids, or their partners, or whoever, really, their friends, I would highly, highly encourage it. I think there's a lot of benefits. Cal, I could talk to you for another two hours because there is so much that I'd love to love to find out uh, about this topic and it's something that I'm really really interested in so I I know you're incredibly busy I really do appreciate you sparing some time to talk to me thank you for all the work that you're doing thank you for writing these incredible books Um, and I hope to have the opportunity to get you back at some point in the future
0: well I really enjoyed it and uh, I'm honored you had me on and it was a great conversation
1: that concludes today's episode of the feel better live more podcast i hope you found the conversation enjoyable and that perhaps it has resulted in you reflecting on your own relationship with the digital world are there any tips that you heard from cal that you can start implementing into your own life straight away and what high quality leisure activities do you have scheduled in for this week i think that is a great question that we can all ask ourselves at the very least on a weekly basis. As always, I love getting feedback as to what you thought of today's show. As Cal is not on social media, you will be unable to let him know what you think. But please do let me know using the hashtag feelbetterlivemore or hashtag FBLM so that I can easily find your comments. There's a lot of information in today's episode. If you go to the show notes page, which is drchastity.com forward slash 50, so that's five zero, you'll find all the topics that we discussed today Including some really interesting links to some fascinating articles and blogs so that you can continue your learning experience now that the podcast is over. The show notes page is drchatterjee.com forward slash five zero. Many of the themes we discussed today are covered in my new book, The Stress Solution. I discuss the importance of meaningful human relationships and how they can help lower our stress levels and improve our health. I also have a large section on how to guard your digital borders. And there's this menu of about 15 different tips that you may want to consider to help you reset your relationship with the digital world. I know from the feedback already that many of you have found this section really helpful. So if you've not picked up a copy of my book yet, you can pick it up in all the usual places in paperback, ebook and the audiobook which I am narrating. If you enjoy my weekly podcasts, one of the best ways that you can support them is by leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. You can also help me spread the word by taking a screenshot right now and sharing with your friends and family on your social media channels, or you could do it the good old fashioned way and simply tell your friends and family about the show. Your support is very much appreciated. That's it for today. I hope you have a fabulous week make sure you have pressed subscribe and I'll be back very shortly with my latest conversation. Remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle change is always worth it because when you feel better, you live more. I'll see you next time.